Welcome to the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor podcast, LaughBox. We have multiple hosts and multiple guests and multiple ways to think out of the box using humor. LaughBox is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. Join us for today's episode 112 with Jim Bob Williams, Katie B, and special guest, Jollytologist Alan Klein. Yay! One. Welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. I'm Jim Bob Williams. And I'm Katie B. And today our guest is jollytologist Alan Klein. I'm also Alan known Klein. <laughs> as the ambassador of light. Wow, I am? yeah and you brought light to every uh conference i was particularly impressed by your presentation on awe this year at the Mm -hmm. uh, aath conference in uh, mesa arizona thank you yes it's called the awe factor subtitle is how a little bit of wonder can make a big difference in your life can you tell us a little about yourself so I've been in the therapeutic business. My first book came out in 1989. And that book came out of what some people would say is a tragedy in my life. My wife had a rare liver disease. We found out three years before she passed away. So terminal illness. And there was no liver transplants. There were no cures. And it was a very difficult, sad time. I had a young daughter at the time. And in fact, I gave up a business I had because it it was really difficult, needless to say. But Ellen and I always had a great sense of humor. In fact, when we got married, we would say, why are we still married? And she would always say, Alan, because you make me laugh. (laughs) <laughs> I I thought I was a real serious guy, but she thought I made her laugh. And we did laugh a lot together. And my answer to her was because life with you is an adventure. She was a gourmet cook, and I never knew when I came home from work if there'd be an incredible meal that she just cooked. Well, she had suddenly decided to invite 20 people, and suddenly there was a big uh, group of people having dinner at our house. So life was always an adventure. And then we found out Ellen got this rare liver disease, and it was difficult. And as I said, there was no cure, but I remember in the hospital, and, and I guess what set off my journey to find out what therapeutic humor was, in the hospital, she had a copy of Playgirl magazine with the male nude center for And she said, Alan, hey, I really like this month. Can you put this picture of this nude man on the wall by the bed? And I said, Ellen, this is a hospital. I said, it's a little risque for that. She said, yeah, but I really like this guy, you know. So I put it up and then I said, you know, there's a plant over there. I'm going to take a leaf and cover up that part. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that when things are fine for the first day, fine for the second day. But by the third day, the leaf starts shriveling up. (laughs) and just what you're doing now we started to laugh and looking back i realized it was only what five or ten twenty seconds of laughter but jim bob and and kate it it helped us rise above the situation it gave us even momentarily a different perspective and it helped us move on and so after ellen died i realized how valuable that 
tool was. And yet at that time, nobody was talking about it. There was no AATH. There was nothing, no book. There was no healing power of human book. And yet here I have this personal experience of how it helped me get through this loss and, and through the grief afterwards also. And so that's when I start to write about it. I went back to school to get a master's degree in human, H-U-M-A-N, development. And my thesis turned into my first book, The Healing Power of Humor. For, the, for those in our studio audience, I'd like them to know that it's very important that you have a copy of The Healing Power of Humor <laughs> with you at all times. I went in to make a humor program for a, a local rehab facility, and I brought with me a rubber chicken, a kazoo, and your book. And the, the director said, this is a serious discipline, isn't it? I go, yes, it is. Uh, so got me the gig. I want to thank you. <laughs> oh, great. I'm pleased. Well, I think the audience should know the book Beyond My Wildest Dreams is now in a 40 plus printing and at least 11, 9th or 11th foreign language translation. So in fact, I was in Japan and I met with two professors there who had my book in English and one in Japanese. <laughs> and they kept saying, is this translation correct over here? It doesn't make sense. And I said, it doesn't make sense because what I was in the healing power of humor, there's a, a, a Hasidic, a Jewish Hasidic story. And they were trying to translate Yiddish into Japanese. And it just did not work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be difficult to find equivalents with some terms. Yeah. yeah Although yeah, there, there so, is a, a, a Yiddish version of uh, Fiddler on the Roof that is done in Japan. Yeah, so they, they so, do it. Yeah. Can be done. So I'm very honored, very proud that the book is gone around the world and in so many languages. And you probably don't know, but the book was originally called Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying. <laughs> and I was writing the publisher, Tatra Putnam. It was my first book. I didn't know, you know anything about it. And I had an editor and I was writing for about eight months. And she said, Alan, this is terrific. Just keep writing. And the book title was Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying. But then she left the company. And right before she left, she said, Alan, never change that title. That is a New York Times bestselling title. So the book got in the publisher's catalog with that title, and they only pre-sold 5,000 copies. And so they pulled the book and said, that's not good enough. They changed the title to The Healing Power of Humor and put it in the next fall catalog. And guess how many it pre-sold? 5,000 copies. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, when uh, who knows? I wish I wish I could have a do over and see, well, how many copies would it? It got to the bestseller list in the New York Times with the old with the learning to laugh when you feel like crying. But I'm happy. I'm a happy camper for what it is and how many lives it is. It is influenced. So. Now, you're a winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, from AATH. We were reviewing the list before and we saw that. Uh, I guess 10 years before you won, uh, Jerry Lewis won. Yeah, Jerry Lewis. Yeah, that was quite memorable conferences in my mind over the years. That was one of them because not only did Jerry Lewis come to the conference, but his whole entourage, I don't know how many men were with him, protecting him. I don't know what it was. And and I AATH almost went bankrupt 
you would think Jerry Lewis would bring in tons of money. Yeah. But he didn't want to stay at the hotel where the conference was. There were all, you know, we had to pay for all his entourage. There were all kinds of stipulations, cost money, which we didn't have much of at that time. So it was great that he was there. We could say he was there, but it was a little stressful for uh, AATH. And I'm grateful because one of my books, he, he gave me an incredible quote, so... I see that. That's on your website. Alan Klein is a noble and vital force watching over the human condition. What an amazing thing to be said. Amazing quote. Yeah. Wow. And I was also told he doesn't give quotes. So he doesn't give testimonials. So that was an added little honor. Yeah, it was great. I have to admit, when I saw that on the website, I said, is that the real Jerry Lewis? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the real one. Ah. The other big celebrity that we had, and this was also a kind of amazing, funny, wonderful conference, was with Patch Adams. Yes. It was in Phoenix. And some of your other people you interviewed may have told you this story because it's certainly a highlight for me and probably others. During his talk, I don't know what the reason was, but he mooned the audience. That's what he does. That's what he does. That's what he does. Oh, <laughs> so I don't know how, how would, ha- well, I've only seen him that once. I mean, I've seen him other times, but not give a lecture. So I don't know what, why it happened, but I think, and I, maybe he does this all the time, but he asks who else would like to come on stage and moon the audience. He does that all the time. Oh, wow. So 40 people got on stage <laughs> and moon the audience. <laughs> That's amazing. I've worked yeah. with Patch. Patch took these suicidal veterans and turned them into clowns and took them on clown trips. And in the airport with the clown vets, as they were just learning how to do this, he talked a large number of people in the airport in Chicago into mooning. <laughs> <laughs> I could see when the plane is late. <laughs> All the passengers <laughs> moon the staff. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, dear. Wonderful. Well, you know, when you're in the plane, you're closer to the moon. <laughs> Maybe. <that's... laughs> Who knows? Actually, I I have this thing about flying. I I used to fly a lot, like 100,000 miles a year when I was speaking. And it would be so creative to be in the plane. A lot of ideas from my books, in the books, came from flying. Part of it, I think, was quiet. No, you know, my phone's not ringing. But the other was I felt I was closer to where that creative energy came from. That may be crazy, but it certainly was a very creative space for me. So I love flying. I had the same phenomenon. I used to fly a lot and found it was extremely productive because there was no distractions. There was no phone. And some of these long flights were just some of my great greatest reports came out of there. But I found right. recently when I was flying, everybody's got the internet. They're watching a movie on their tablet. And in the last couple of years of my professional career, people are writing to me from somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. I'm going, there's no downtime for them anymore. It's Yeah, that's, I mean, that's too bad. 
Because I think, talking about humor and laughter, you don't see the humor when you're just buried in your cell phone or your computer. It could be right there. It could be some interaction that happened on the plane or the passenger next to you. And you don't see it now because you're buried in this device. Absolutely. Mm. So can I talk about a couple of other conferences? Of course. Because I, I was a speaker at one, and I, I was a keynote speaker doing a session on play. And something Pee Wee Herman just just passed away recently, yeah. not too long ago. Pee Wee Herman passed away. And so in that place, he was so playful. He was like the most playful person I knew. His TV show, Pee Wee's Playhouse, so creative, so playful. So for that play session, I took one of his ideas, which every show he had a secret word and he would show it. And whenever that secret word was mentioned, all the kids at home were supposed to go wild. So I took the A-A-T-H, I, I said, okay, today we have a secret word. And the secret word, the meeting plan of that year was Sporty King. I don't know if you yes. know him, but yeah. So the secret word was Sporty. So anytime anyone said Sporty, of course, they did throughout the conference because they had him call him on st Sporty, come up on stage, or some people would just, other speakers would go, Oh, look, uh, you have such a sporty coat on today. <laughs> and then everyone went wild throughout the conference. And I thought it was my idea, so I'm taking credit. But it was just so fabulous. It was because you never knew when it was going to happen. It was very playful. It, it was spontaneous. It also was a nice break sometimes when people were doing serious sessions on therapeutic humor or the yeah. scientific research. <laughs> And for some reason, they had to say sporty. <laughs> uh, so I, I love that session. <laughs> you know, can you say more about the power of play at this point in our existence on Earth? I'm a play entrepreneur and trying to bring more play to adults through gratitude, recognition, acknowledgement, and laughter. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I think you're totally right. We don't play enough, right? You know, we think, well, we're adults, we can't play. In fact, I did a workshop once and talking about laughing with your kids and one mother raised her hand and said, I, I can't play with my kids. I can't laugh with my kids. And I said, why not? She said, because then I can't discipline them. Then they won't listen to me. They think I'm too silly or something. I said, that's just the opposite. They will listen to you more because you're establishing a report. You're establishing connection. They can trust you. They, you know, they'll know when you're being serious. Don't worry, you know, she didn't get it. She did not get it. So I think adults don't get it. There's another organization, Adultitis is their theme, and they show people how to not be such an adult. I love it. <laughs> my thing is to grow down. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, one of my books, where is it? I had it here. It is Secrets Kids Know That Adults Ought to Learn. And so it has lots of ideas of how. Adults can grow down and be more like a kid because I think kids have this unblemished, unfiltered way of looking at the world that 
adults could really learn from. Absolutely. So, you know, thank you for teaching adults how to play. My daughter, she's 54. We play so well together. We'll walk down the street. I live in San Francisco and there are parking meters. We'll go over and we'll make believe it's a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> it's our little microphone and we'll sing into it. Or we're in Golden Gate Park and we hear some Italian people speaking here and Japanese here and French mm -hmm. there. And we'll start imitating them, making believe we're from Italy or France. <laughs> just, yes. Just being just being silly and laughing. Yes. Ep oh, an sure epidemic of epic proportions escape adulthood. Yep. There it is. Yeah. So you both should know that. Join them. Adultitis is their theme. He puts out a great newsletter. He's also a speaker and an author. He's also an artist, and he does these really, really playful paintings that are fantastic. The more play we can get, better. When did you yeah. move to San Francisco? You know of the Merry Pranksters. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. You... yeah. Play is so important and, and something we forget. Yes, absolutely. You know, and and I realized throughout my life, my daughter, my husband now, uh, my wife, we play all the time. We laugh all the time. We get silly all the time. Thank goodness. Um, and me, I can't prove this, but I just turned 85 a couple of months ago. And people are always saying, you don't look 85. You don't sound 85. Is it the play and the laughter? I don't know. Is my genes? Maybe my mom lived to 95. Maybe it's my genes. Maybe the way I eat. I, I don't know. Maybe it's my dog. They say having a pet. And that's a simple way to get more play in your life. Have a pet. Because yeah. yeah, the pet will always do something funny. Always. Yeah. Always. Oh, I had a I had a previous dog and I was watching a tennis match on TV on the ball going back and forth. And suddenly the ball went off the screen and the dog got up and looked behind the TV. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about so. that big birthday you had. You had an epic birthday celebration that lasted for days. Can you tell us about that? Well, my birthday was actually April 26th. The big party was in May. And what is this? We're going into September. I Let me look at my calendar a minute. I have August 31st. Someone's taking me out for my birthday lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't the birthday be celebrated all year? Yeah, why not? Yeah. I love that. So mine just keeps going. So I had a 85th birthday party at a nightclub that I go to a lot. I, I love live, particularly Broadway performers, because I grew up in New York City. And so what I did is I rented the space and I wrote an hour musical of how Broadway songs have influenced my life. Because I went, since seven years old, I went to Broadway shows. And in fact, it influenced me. My first career was a scenic designer. So I wrote all these little things that happened, like I was on a Broadway stage. My wife and I, favorite song was People and we had great orchestra seats, but on the side, she started to sing. She goes up a brownstone steps. She disappears. All we can see is her shoes while she's singing our song, people. So stories like that. And then I hired three musicians and a pianist, and they sang 
songs or parts of songs from that show. And before we had a little drink and nibbles and after we had coffee and cake in the lounge. So it was this incredible, people came up to me afterwards, that's the best birthday party I've ever been to. So every milestone birthday, I try to create memories because I think that's what we do in life, right? Absolutely. Your relationship, you're creating memories. Your parade was a memory for people mm-hmm. that they still remember. They I do. I still remember Patch Adams, Jerry Lewis. I still, you know, we're creating memories. So that's what I try to do. So I'm thinking for 90 I'm going to have a mashed and strained food. (laughs) (laughs) No one will have teeth. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I watched your TED talk about how your thoughts and intentions create your reality. And I'm a huge fan of quantum physics and this thought process. And, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that was in, that was seven years ago, at least it ended up on YouTube. Where are you now, years later, after that TED Talk? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, one, I'm so grateful for that. It's now 135,000 almost views. So, But the amazing thing about that is the beginning beginning of that year, I, I always do a wish list, a bucket list at the beginning of a year. And on it, I had, I wanted to do a TED talk that year. A month or so later, I get a call or an email, I guess, from a high school that does TED talks every year. It's in Silicon Valley, all the kids, it's Apple country. So these are really brilliant kids that they can do and they do amazing stuff. Asking me to do a TED talk and they really want wanted me to do the therapeutic humor, which I could do in my sleep at that time. Now I'm a little older. My brain doesn't work as well. In fact, I made some notes today, so I didn't forget what I was going to say. And I thought, wait a minute, this experience just happened that happens to me frequently where I kind of create in my mind or put it on the wall, you know, what I want. And then it manifests. And I thought, I always like to push myself a little and try new things. Like the humor and awe thing that I did at the conference. I had no idea that there was that kind of material and it filled more than an hour. I had to stop or cut and near the end. I had to chop it off because I had too much material. But anyhow, so I thought, would I, these are high school kids. Wouldn't it be maybe more impactful? impactful if I talked about when you get out of high school, set your intention. What do you want? What do you want to be? Because I knew when I looked back in my life, when I was taken to my first Broadway show at seven years old, in my mind, I wanted to be a scenic designer. And I told the teacher, she didn't even know what that was. And I would do little sets of the book we were reading and shoe boxes or cigar boxes. So I was kind of already setting myself to do that. So I thought the high school kids should know this. So it was talking about intention and how I got my Victorian house that you see behind me in my office Mm -hmm. now by drawing pictures of Victorian houses. I have a treasure map on the wall of 
it's how I got the name Ambassador of Light, because when I started to do that, there's candles, there's Christmas lights, there's other lights, there's sunshine, there's all kinds of light things. And I thought, yes, that's what I do. I teach people how to lighten up in a way, too. Mm -hmm. So it's all of these things, I think, that we start feeding into our mind that I think the world picks up uh, that energy. And we, like if I told you, don't look for blue, suddenly you'll start seeing blue things because you feed that one work. So I had to do that talk and uh, I'm so glad I did. Me too. But let me tell you, this is, who was it? Harvey something? Harvey, the rest of the story? Uh, uh, Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. So the rest of the story, here's the rest of the story. <laughs> so we, I get to the theater. It's a really nice theater, big, bright, big stage, big bright lights. And we have a rehearsal and I get on and I'm like five minutes into it. They have no monitor so I could have my notes or anything. So I have no notes to even look at. I totally forget what I'm going to say. Just totally forget. And I realized part of it was because I like seeing the audience and I couldn't see anyone because of the bright lights. So I had that fixed during the talk and so the talk went well, but I went outside and I just started to meditate. And I thought, if you want me to do this talk, you've got to help me because it's not working. And I kind of meditated and finally it was okay. But the other thing I realized, they had the other speakers and myself sit in the audience and then they'd introduce us and come up on stage. And I thought, that is way too boring. That doesn't feed my energy. That's really not me. I have to do something else. And so I did. As there was a big sign on stage that said um, TED Talk and who's presenting it. So before they introduced me, I snuck behind it. <laughs> and when they introduced me, I popped up. You don't see it on the video, but I popped up. And some people started to laugh, but mostly I started to laugh. And it set the tone for me to that I know I can get through this and keep it fun. So one of my tips for anyone out there who's been a speaker is you've got to set the mood. You've got to, if the isn't the way you like it set up. Step in and make it the way you want it. Don't let the room or the lighting or whatever dictate what you're going to do because that's not you. And that's a perfect segue because I have a question written here after looking at your website. What does it take to be this kind of speaker, public speaker? What does it take to be the public speaker that you've been? Any advice? Yeah, I think it's going the extra mile. In fact, I remember years ago when I was first starting out, it was like Mississippi Healthcare Association, nursing home administrators. And the meeting planner came up to me afterwards and said, you don't charge enough. <laughs> <laughs> And I knew then it's time to raise my fees. So, because I've also seen a lot of speakers, they see speakers charging a lot of money for their fee and they're not ready to charge that because so many things go into the speech. It's not just you getting up there for 45 minutes. Yeah. And how do you handle that? I've had earthquake or supposedly it was an earthquake. It wasn't. I've had the lights go out. I've had the AV not working. I've had a fire alarm go off and I had to get everyone out of the ballroom. You have to know how to handle that and 
It's only through experience that, or you have these supposedly ad-lib lines. Do you think that so, being a, a set designer gave you the better ability to be a speaker because you know how things fit into the overall, you know why something is placed in a certain area, what it's supposed to do, what it's supposed to contribute to the entire experience. It's more than just the words. And to go along with that, what does it take to be a speaker? I remember one place, I well, two two incidences. One is I got in the room and I remember the chairs were all facing the wrong way and, and it was just something was totally wrong with the room. And I went to the meeting plan. I asked, can I reset it? And I did it all myself. And her testimony letter, you are every speaker's dream speaker because I helped her out. Another one, the whole conference was going to a show that night. And I was speaking the next day, got in early. I was walking downtown. I passed the theater. I asked her for a ticket. But I noticed she had, in the lobby, there was, you know, immediate 7.30, the show's at 8. It was Sunday night. The show was at 7. So I went to her and I said, you know, the show is not at 8 tonight. It's 7. I saved the day for her. My point is, it's not just your speech. That's only part of it. It's everything else. You want to look good. You want her to look good. You want the event to look good. So you do whatever it takes. And just one other little example. I remember I was doing several speeches in a row and I had to fly from St. Louis to Omaha. And there was a terrible lightning and thunderstorm that night. And all the flights were canceled. And it was like nine o'clock at night. And I'm speaking at nine in the morning, the first flight out. Wouldn't get me there. I rented a car and drove three hours in the pouring rain in the dark without a, without GPS at time, <laughs> looking at maps. That's what professional speakers do. Wonderful. Yeah. There's a friend of mine who teaches classes in stand-up comedy, and his, his advice is this. When, when you get a gig, your job is to make the person who hired you look like a genius. So I have one other funny talking about setting the scene that you like. So this is my biggest audience ever. 1,500 people in Grand Old Opry Nashville Hotel. And I thought, yeah, it's going to be boring to come on stage to the side. Why don't I go behind the curtain? And when they introduce me, just open the curtain and come through the curtain. Right. Pretty simple. So they're talking about me. They finish. I cannot find the slit <laughs> in the curtain. And, I, <laughs> and I'm going, <laughs> oh, my God, this is all... I finally find it probably was only 15, 20 seconds, but yeah. it felt like forever. And then I thought, you know what I should have done? Crawled under the curtain and then told the audience what was happening. But hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, if if there was one sentence after you've left this existence that you would like people to repeat about you, what would that oh, sentence dear. be? <laughs> Oh, dear. Is that too hard? No, but let me tell you something that's been happening, which is amazing to me, is after my 85th birthday party, a woman who is in films came up to me and she said, somebody should make a documentary about your life. And she said, I know a lot of people. And yesterday at my spiritual center, someone came up to me and said, are you writing a book about your life? You should. You had such an interesting life. So it keeps happening. So your question. If you wanted people to talk about you in one sentence, what would that sentence be? He was kind. He was loving. He was caring. Beautiful. That's what came up. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Love it. And full of awe. So let's talk about 
<laughs> your connection. Ah, all right. <laughs> ah, ah. So what was, you know, when I got the proposal last year, I thought, is there any connection between humor and awe? So it was my first book, Healing Power of Humor, last book, The Awe Factor. And I, and I came up with three things and I put it in the proposal thinking I'll probably be asked to do a breakout so I can kind of experiment. I can interact with the audience, ask them about what their thoughts are. And then I get a letter, congratulations, you're our closing keynote speaker. And I thought, <laughs> oh no, now I have to do a real presentation. So I start doing research and I was blown away by how much connections. So AATH, their definition of humor is humor is the healthy way of feeling a distance between oneself and the problem, a way of standing off and looking at one's problem with perspective. So then I looked at awe and, and the researchers talk about awe as challenging our understanding of the world. It's like the Grand Canyon. It's so big that we have a hard time understanding how did this happen? So it's also, it gives us a different perspective. So humor does and awe does. I call awe a wow experience, A-W-E, a wow experience. And so like when you're telling a joke, sometimes you have this wow experience, you you laugh so much, you fall on the floor, you wet your pants, you know, your eyes tear. It could be a wow experience. So there was a connection there. And the other is, I don't know if you remember Dr. Cliff Kuhn, but he was a member and he was a doctor. <clears throat> and he defined laughter. He said, laughter reduces stress, boosts immunity, relieves pain. I guess not a definition, but what it, what it does. Oh. Decreases anxiety, stabilizes mood, rests the brain, enhances communication, inspires creativity, maintains hope, and boisters morale. So I took that same definition and I put awe in instead of laughter. So awe and same things as laughter. Awe reduces stress, relieves pain, decreases anxiety, stabilizes mood, enhances communication, inspires creativity, and bolsters morale. So it could use same definition. So awe and, and humor both are connectors. I remember standing on the beach in Honolulu watching the green flash when the sun sets, there's often a green flash. And immediately you turn to your neighbor and you, you chat. Have you seen this before? Wasn't that amazing? When was the last time you saw it? There was none last night. I mean, you just start chatting. Same thing with laughter. You turn to someone else because you're laughing at the same joke or the yeah. same incident. It's a connector. The other thing is, as I said, it gives us perspective. When you can find humor in something, you see it in a different way. You, you get that distance. And the same thing when you find something awesome, it's like you've never seen this before. It's something new. It's something different. And you get a different perspective. Both support well-being and both support creativity. The studies about are helping with creativity. And we all know to create a joke, you need to be creative, right? You need to take this thing here and something totally not related here. And suddenly that's funny. So that in 25 words or less is some of the things between the connection of humor and awe. And I awed myself because no one has ever come up with that before. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it was fun. It was great fun doing it and finding that connection. So a question I'd like to ask, my famous question, what difference does humor make on Thursday? We go through our, our, our typical existence and every Thursday is just like any other Thursday with its problems or whatnot. But is there something you could say about humor that someone could take with them to get them through that next Thursday? Well, you know, a lot of people, in fact, the other day, someone said, oh, tell me a joke. And I say, I don't really tell jokes. I'm not good. Most people don't. Five people out of 100 tell jokes well. We associate jokes with humor. Look around you. There is humor all around. One example I give is it was in a laundromat and it said, when the machine stops, remove all your clothing, which I did. <laughs> um, and now they won't let you back in the laundromat. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm also wondering, is there somewhere out there, someone that said, oh, I got machines tumbling. It's time to take it out. It was reaches and while it was moving. Yeah. Never <laughs> right. seen anybody do that. Yeah. So there's humor all around. But, you know, again, we have the blinders on, particularly today. We talked about that, the phone, the computer. Just look around. And the other thing I like, and I see you have one in your hand, is to have a prop around, right? Yeah. That red clown nose. You're a little down that day. Put that on and look in the mirror. I've used it in traffic jams. So people around me, I'm helping them lighten up. <laughs> um <laughs> Even when it falls off, like yours just did. Uh, the other thing is everyone's sense of humor is different. So for me to tell you what you need to do to get more laughter in your life, it's a little hard. <laughs> you know, that's why teaching humor workshops is not that easy, because not everything fits for everyone in the audience. The, the principle is, so the universal answer, it depends. Yeah. It depends, yeah. right. Which getting at my age depends is an important thing. Yes. <laughs> I think the you know, same thing goes for all because two people can look at a meteor shower at night and one person is, isn't that amazing that this material traveled so far and it's burning up the atmosphere and it's giving us this light show and somebody else says, Two o'clock in the morning, I want to go back home. and uh, Right. And you know, you bring up an important, another connection between humor and awe is, um, you know, there's different kinds of humor and there's different kinds of awe. Yeah. You know, and people, I love slapstick. A lot of people may not like slapstick. That's fine. Yeah. Find what, one of the tips is find what makes you laugh, helps you to laugh. But the awe, it's the same thing that one of the stories in my book is about prisoners that were coming out of prison, three prisoners. One day the term was over, they were coming out and a reporter asked them, what are you looking forward to? You've been in prison so many years. What are you looking forward to? And one said, I'm looking forward to being with my family. I haven't really been with them in you know, 10, 15 years. And the other one said, I'm looking forward. I love baseball. I'm looking forward to going to a live baseball game. And the third prisoner said, I'm looking forward to opening the refrigerator. That was his <laughs> awe thing. And I thought, that's a little crazy, you know. But then I realized he's been in prison so many years. Yeah. He was never able to get a drink, drink yeah. a glass of milk, an apple, a sandwich. Opening the refrigerator and getting some nourishment was yeah. his like awe special moment. Yeah, I open the refrigerator eight times a day or more. Yeah. That's not special for me. Everyone's different. All right. So for our listeners, if they 
they need to find something that you wrote or where should they go? What website should they be looking for? Well, they can go to their local bookstore. They can always order my book or online. For some people, it's a dirty word, but Google has all my books or my website, which is www.allenkline.com. Spell correctly, A-L-L-E-N. K-L-E-I-N.com. Okay. <laughs> and do you it. have any uh, speeches or uh, presentations coming up that you'd like to let the audience know about? I have some. I don't do a lot of talks these days that the public could access. I have one for a breakfast club in San Francisco. I have one for a spiritual center like that. I did one that's going to be on YouTube. So it'll just be up on YouTube. And I, I put it in my social media sites. Awesome. Awesome. Would like to ask- awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> 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 okay. So you've led the, the field of therapeutic humor since 1989, still contributing, uh, still educating, inspiring. Where do you see therapeutic humor going next? What do you think will be the next big thing? Well, I always thought it would be a big thing and it was little a little big thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we need more of it in our lives. And so far it hasn't caught on as much as I thought it would. So where it's going, I don't know, really. I wish I can be a prophet and tell you, but particularly in the United States, we've been so divided politically. And of course, if, if politicians could laugh together, they would maybe accomplish something rather than fighting with each other. And because we know that humor and laughter connect people. So I wish I could leave you with a more encouraging thing, but maybe something will happen. Something will come along. Maybe we'll have a really funny president here in the United States or world leader, someone to show us the way, or I don't know about if you know what the S-E-S-T training is, but it was years ago, Werner Earhart. Oh, and one of the things was the highest form of knowledge is not knowing. Because when we know, then it's like we're set in ways. So not knowing is leaving the space open. So when I say, I don't know where it's going, I think this is maybe a high form and it's leaving the space open for something major to happen in the therapeutic humor movement. I agree. Mm -hmm. And I thought you were going to go somewhere with play and humor. And uh -huh. I'm hoping that the science that's been found in the results of laughter yoga and intentional laughter and humor in that way, and where we're finding the, the medical benefits, I'm hoping that that helps drive the train to more humor and play studies and, and more direct information that people can use on a daily basis. Yeah, and it might. Yeah, I just don't, I don't see any trend right now. So mm -hmm. Daltitis is trying to get the play movement going. Yeah. And, and it's, it's doing what it does, but it we need more people like them, like you, doing, <laughs> a lot of people start doing something it happens. So AATH is doing their part. Yes. Um, so we we all do our little part, I guess. And if I said to you, it all starts with gratitude, what do you think about that? Oh my God, gratitude is every day I, I am so grateful for it. And it doesn't matter what you have. I remember I had an aunt, it was during World War II. She worked for the Brooklyn Navy Yard and 
She worked really hard. She was divorced. She was raising two kids. When I think of gratitude, I think of her. If somebody in the building, it was an apartment building, suddenly was going to get married or engaged or was going to have a child, she would get out her knitting needles or crochet needles and make something. If it was their birthday, she would go in the kitchen and make cookies or a birthday cake. I guess it's connected to gratitude. She was just so loving and just giving. So I am grateful for for so much in my life. It's just every day I just feel so blessed for what I do that I can give to people. I just got an email this morning about my Embracing Life After Loss book from a man who said he read the book, his wife's been gone three years, and how much he he loves that book and how much it's helped him. So I am so grateful that I can have that talent, thank you, whoever, that my words could help people, even one person. It's amazing. And then for my relationships, for my spiritual center, for my city I live in, for my Victorian house, for my dog, for my, <laughs> do you want me to keep going <laughs> for the food? I'm so grateful. So there are two things, if we're talking about grateful, that I think could help people. One is be more grateful, you know, look even the smallest things in your life that you're grateful for. And the other is forgiveness, that forgive other people, forgive yourself, forgive things that don't happen that you wanted to happen. It's such a powerful tool. And in one of my books, there was a quote, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I got a letter from a woman. It was one of my quotation books. And she said she was molested when she was very young. And for over 50 years, she had never forgiven that person. And it's ruined her life. She said, I read this quote about taking back your power. She said, I've taken back my power by forgiving this person and my life is totally changed. We don't realize how, how, what a burden forgiveness is. Wow. So forgiveness, attitude, humor, awe, what else? Play, five, yeah. five things. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Jim Bob, anything else? I just want to thank you, Ellen. It's just been a magical time. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, thank you. I want to tell you both. I've done hundreds of interviews like this. I've laughed the most <laughs> today. <laughs> this interview was the laughiest one. <laughs> Is that Yay. a word? Laughiest. I'll take it. Laughiest I love it. one. <laughs> uh, and most playful of any I've done out of the 200 or so. So thank you. Thank you. I had a great I, time. I'm so grateful. I loved your speech at the conference and honored to be sitting in this space with you. Thank you so much. And I'm going to add a little playfulness. <laughs> I may have mentioned at the conference, I think I did. Um, the highlight of my career, 20-year speaking career, was um, a whole weekend with burn survivors. And I was scared stiff <laughs> and excited. <laughs> Um, to do that because I didn't know what I was going to get into. And I was supposed to teach them how to lighten up. Meantime, they didn't have arms or part of their face. So it was horrendous what they went through. And I was supposed to teach them how to lighten up. So, But you were called on. I was called on by something higher up, I believe, or some something. And go do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't not do it. Do it because we have to experiment. Yeah. We got to see where this goes. I just thought I'd bring, I got a new oh, rubber chicken. It has a bikini oh, wow. and a tattoo. 
<laughs> oh, that is fabulous. And I, I'm juggling them, which is taking some learning effort. Oh, but they right. make great oh, noises. Beautiful. Where it's did you find it? They're dog toys. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so here you just came up with something you should tell listeners that you could find funny stuff anywhere. Anywhere. Alan, thank you so much for doing this with us and allowing us into your life a little bit and happy happiest 85th year thank you guys it was an honor for me to be here thank you thank you thank you bye thank you for joining us for episode 112 with alan klein jim bob williams and katie b thank you very much and Laugh Box, brought to you by the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Laugh Box is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. And we'll see you next time.